choir to the next level, though. Smile at them while they sing. Somebody smile at them. We got I can tell. I can tell where some of you came from with your church background, and uh, you charismatic folks, I can appreciate. But uh, you folks who came from stuffy churches, loosen up a little. That was a really good song. Don't be afraid to. Uh, don't be afraid to move a little bit. Nobody's going to steal your seat if your if your fanny slides a quarter inch left or right. It's okay. But uh, good job, guys. If you will take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Kings, we are going to start out uh, in the 1 Kings chapter 14. Well, on our way to uh, 1 Kings chapter 14, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll start. Father, we thank you for your Word. Father, we thank you that we can sing great songs about your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we can tell songs that make us want to go out and tell somebody about the good things you've done. And God, I pray that as we get into your word this morning, Lord, I pray that we would be just as zealous to study your word. And Father, be able to observe and to take application uh, from the things that happened in Elijah's life. And Father, we pray that uh, our lives would forever be changed uh, by the great things in your word. I pray that during this next time we have together, that you would use me, your servant, to feed your people. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're in 1 Kings chapter 14. And in order to get to 1 Kings chapter 14, you have to understand that God created everything in seven days, or created everything in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And he created man in his image, and man was perfect without blemish. And God and man dwelt together in the garden. Man sinned, man was separated from God. And God has been on a journey to restore man back to where he was before. And so he chooses a man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to draw the world back to myself. And so God has been on a mission from Genesis chapter 11 all the way through 1 Kings to bring the world back together through Abraham. So he's given Abraham land, seed, and a blessing in an effort to draw the world together. And you have seen now that uh, they are in the land, that, uh, that Abraham's seed has been established, and now they are inheriting the blessings of God under the reign of David and Solomon. And so last week and the, and the week before, we talked about that during Solomon's reign, the people are at their peak. This is, this is, Israel is in its perfect place. God is raising them up and the world is being drawn to Israel and they're seeing how great God is. And as Israel obeys the Lord, more and more people are going to be drawn to the Lord and the world is going to be reached if Israel will just obey. Well, Solomon ends up tragically not obeying the Lord and at the end of Solomon's death, uh, the kingdom is split. We have ten tribes to the north. We have two tribes to the south. Jeroboam takes the ten tribes to the north. His Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes the two tribes to the south. And now we're entering into a place in the book of First Kings where we're going we're gonna to go through about a 90-year span of time where God is dealing with Israel and with Judah, trying to bring them back to himself. And so this is really the first one of the prophets that we're going to take a look at, and it's Elijah. Elijah is, is one of the, the big-time prophets in Scripture. And so let's get started in First Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 21. Now, you're going to have to hang on for the first for the next five minutes. I need you to hang on tight. It's going to be a little bit of a history lesson. Um, 
but we're going to get somewhere. We've got to cover about a 90-year span before we get to Elijah. It says, and this is the reign of Rehoboam in Judah. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Remember, that's the southern two tribes. Verse 22. Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him, that's God, to jealousy more than all their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. And so this is the, these are the godly tribes in Judah. They're building high places and under trees, they're setting up idols. And I told you that all of these this idolatry worship is sexually charged. When they're talking about setting up high places on the hill and setting up places under every tree, these are, these are places for the most part where all sorts of sexually worshipful acts are going to happen to these idols. Because the way that you worship these idols are, are through going through these acts. This is, um, well, well, hang on. Then in verse 25, it says, Now it came about in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, this is only five years after Solomon's death, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Now, you can expect this, right? You've read through Deuteronomy chapter 27, Leviticus, or Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. You know that when Israel and Judah are going to disobey because of the Mosaic covenant, that God is going to send people in to attack them. You know that all sorts of curses they're going to inherit if they're disobedient, right? Give me a little head nod. You're, so this is no surprise to you. And so this guy, the king of Egypt, comes against Jerusalem. And then in verse 26, this is a tragedy. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. And so if you remember, Solomon is such a, such a rich ruler that the scripture says that silver in Solomon's day, silver, like solid silver, had absolutely no value at all. That gold was so plentiful in Israel that silver was like the dust of the earth. That'd be a good time to buy silver, right? Now, this guy comes in, the king of Egypt, and he takes away all the treasure in the Lord's house. And so Judah went from being this incredibly rich nation. You go to the house of the Lord and there's all these treasures. There's golden shields. I mean, there are thousands of, of pounds of gold. Solomon brought in billions of dollars of gold each year and now Egypt has just stolen it all. And so, that's all because of the disobedience of Rehoboam. So, Rehoboam, because of all of the... Well, Rehoboam is a bad ruler and so he ends up dying. And then, this guy in, in chapter 15, Abijam... I have no idea how to pronounce his name, but I like that version. Abijam becomes ruler of Judah. And then in verse 3 of chapter 15, it says that he, that's Abijam, walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. But for David's sake, remember the covenant made with David? David, if you will obey me, and if your sons after you will obey me, you'll always have a king that is able to sit on the throne. Then he says, despite Abijam's wickedness, verse 4, but for David's sake, the Lord gave God, excuse me, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. And so 
uh, Rehoboam does bad. His son Abijam does bad. You have uh, a king named Asa down in verse 9 who becomes king over Judah. He doesn't do good. And then, then... Kings is tricky. Kings is going to cover the kings of Judah, and it's going to cover the kings of Israel at the same time. And so we've together, you have two different kings, because now the nation of Israel is split. And so now we're going to jump over, and we're going to look at the kings of Israel. Now we're over in chapter 15, verse 26. This is the reign of Nadab in Israel. Now, I know this is a lot to keep up with, but Nadab is going to take over after Jeroboam, the king of Israel, dies. Verse 26 says this of Nadab. He did evil in the sight of his Lord, of the Lord, and walked in the way which his father, and in his sin which he made in Israel. And so what this means is that Nadab does the exact same things that his father Jeroboam had done. Now, the biggest problem in Israel right now, the biggest problem in the northern territory, which we're calling Israel, is what? Golden calves. Remember, now you're in Israel, there's a golden calf in Dam, in Dan, and there's a golden calf uh, farther up north, uh, around, I believe it's uh, Beersheba, somewhere up north. But anyways, there's two golden calves, and no longer are the people in the north going to the house of the Lord to worship, but they're worshiping God at the golden calves. And this is breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Don't set up any false images, anything like that. And so they're not worshiping the Lord the way that the Lord wants to be worshipped. Now go over to verse 34. Verse 34, a man by the name of Basha takes over Israel. And it says in verse 34 of chapter 15, He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam. And in his sin which he made Israel sin... Now listen to this, this in chapter 16, verse one, I'm going to read this next section because I'm going to make a case that you as a, as a Bible believing Christian need to be concerned with reading all of God's word, because now that we're into the book of Kings and now that we're into the prophets next, next week is the book of Joel. You're going to like the book of Joel. Uh, you've probably never read it and thought, wow, that was satisfying before, but you're going to find the book of Joel incredibly satisfying next week. But this is why it's important that you read all of the word so that you can understand the illustrations that are going to be given. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani against Basha saying "Inasmuch, verse two, as I exalted you from the dust and made you leader over my people, Israel. And you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin, provoking me to anger with their sins. Behold, I will consume Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, is this good or bad? What did he say he was going to do to Jeroboam and Jeroboam's house? He said, Jeroboam, I'm going to sweep you away like someone sweeps dung off the front porch. Now talk about a playground insult. When God shows up on the playground and says, boy, looky here, I'm going to sweep you away like your mama sweeps dog poop off the porch. That's an insult coming from God. Loosen up, guys. God said it, not me. I'm just putting it in modern day language. Then he says, so I'm going to do that to you. And that's a bad thing. Then he says in verse four, this is what he's going to do. Anyone of Basha who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the field, the birds of heavens will eat. The bird of the heavens will eat. This is a bad thing coming from God. And so God is already dishing out judgment to those people who are going to walk in disobedience to him. And these people are walking in 
willing disobedience. It's not phasing them at all to walk in disobedience. Now go over to chapter 16, verse 25. You have a couple more people who reign in Israel. Some of their reigns are very short. And you have a man by the name of Zimri. Zimri gets killed by a man named Omri. And in verse 25 of chapter 16, it says, Omri, this is a king of Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins, which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. And so here you have several kings of Israel have taken over and each king walks in the ways of his father and each king is getting continually and continually, continually worse. And now Omri is the worst guy around so far. But because his son Ahab doesn't want to live in his father's shadow, flip over to verse 30 of chapter 16. Ahab, this is chapter 16, verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, this is king of Israel, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So even more than his father. It came about, verse 31, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So, you getting this? That because of the sins of Jeroboam, each of the kings after him walk in sin. And now you have Omri, who does worse than all of the other kings before him. And now Omri's son, Ahab, does even more wickedness than Omri. And it says that it had been a, it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Listen to this. This is why I've been telling you as dads that it is so important that you live a holy and righteous life because the sins that you have that your children think are okay, any sin that you put your stamp of approval on is going to be a trivial thing for your son or your daughters, and they're going to take it even farther. And when your true story is written by God, don't let it be that his son, that it was a trivial thing for his son to walk in the sins of his father. Don't let that be your story. Let me give you a couple of, of points of application. Uh, I feel like I have to address this before it becomes a problem. Fifty Shades of Grey. 20 million views on YouTube already. I clicked on the YouTube trailer this morning just to see how many people had viewed it. 20 million people have viewed it. The trailer. The trailer just came out about a week ago. A hundred million books have been sold Fifty Shades of Grey. If you don't know what I'm talking about, good. Walk walk in ignorance. It's a sexually charged book that is written to a female audience. Uh, it's, it's labeled as an erotic book. Okay? This is, this is pornography that our culture has stamped a it's okay on. Okay? This is, this is no longer a, a book that's in a magazine rack that kids aren't able to get to, but this is a book that's out in the open that anyone can purchase and people are encouraged to purchase in our, in our culture. And the whole reason that this sexually charged book is being, is selling so many books is because it puts people in a fantasy world and people are interested in reading about other people's fantasies rather than living their own mediocre life. It's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous thing. And so just to, can I chase a rabbit? Maybe? Chase a rabbit? Now that was a bait and switch because once I get this rabbit, you're going to say, oh, I wish he hadn't gone there. Listen, 
people are attracted to all of these sexual fantasies. Now listen very closely. If you are married, let me start with if you're not married. If you are not married, you need to save every single sexual fantasy you have for marriage and for your wife or your husband. Got it? You with me? You need to be saving it. That's the, that's the great thing about your honeymoon is that's when you get away and that is when it is your turn to enter the world of people who are married and monogamous and enjoying a great sexual relationship with each other. Now, if you're here and you're married and you are bored with your sex life, this is a heck of a rabbit, isn't it? And you are bored with your sex life. Do not, do not go after books and magazines and the internet. Don't do that. Don't go observing other people's fantasies. Listen to this. Come up with your own and take them into your own bedroom with your spouse. Don't go steal someone else's spouse who may be enjoying a good sex life. But you come up with your own things and you enjoy them within the confounds of marriage. That's when somebody should be given a good amen. Listen. You want to keep your marriage safe as a lady? This is when the rabbit gets good. Ladies, you want to affair-proof your marriage? You put something on your husband that he'll be thinking about all day. If your husband's a farmer, there ought not to be a straight row in his farm because he's thinking about you. Okay? Listen, I'm leveling with you. You need to, you need to, you need to fulfill your husband. And this is all Christ-like. This is all godly. God is the one who came up with all of this, not me. You need to be fulfilling your husband so that he is not going to other places looking for fulfillment. Men, you need to be fulfilling your wives. And wives are not fulfilled the same way that you are fulfilled. Your wife is wired differently. Your wife needs you to love her, to respect her. She needs other things too. But if you will love her like Christ loved the church... She will not have to go after novels and inappropriate movies to find fulfillment. We need to be people of God who have healthy marriages and who have all of the and who do all of the healthy things that people in marriages are supposed to do, and we are content and satisfied within them so that we don't have to go to other places looking for fulfillment. Amen? Fifty Shades of Grey should not even be tempting to you. Magic Mike should not be tempting to you. Now, I'm not, I'm not applauding all of the things that happen in these movies, but you should be first and foremost and only be looking to your spouse for any sort of sexual fulfillment, not other places. And so we shouldn't see anything on Facebook, or any of our people like the movie, watch the movie, or even approve of the book, right? Because we are happy within our marriages. Now, that'll preach, right? That's a good rabbit. Anyways. Here we go. Now on to chapter 17. I thought about taking a break from this Bible study and spending a whole sermon talking about that. But I figured enough of you'd be wiggling after about five minutes that I better not. I better just make it a rabbit trail instead of a whole sermon. But don't worry. We'll get to those passages soon enough and then we'll camp out on them. Have a real good time, right? That'll be bring a friend Sunday. Now, chapter 17. So you have been seeing here, you have seen, boy, I'd love to be a fly on the wall at some of your lunch conversations. The, uh, the Heritage House 
never be the same after this. I want y'all, I want y'all not to be bashful. Don't sit in the back section. Sit out front where people can hear you talking about these things, all right? Anyways, you've walked through now 90 years of history with the kings of Israel. And the kings are getting more and more and more and more wicked. And so now it's time for God to step in. And you should at this point realize that as the kings get more and more wicked, the people are naturally going to get more wicked. And God is going to begin bringing about the curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And so here we pick up with a man by the name of Elijah. This is chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so Elijah, the prophet of God, comes before the king and says, As surely as the Lord my God lives, there won't be any rain except by my word. Now this is right in line with Deuteronomy 28. You disobey me, you disobey God, and the, the sky will be like iron and you won't get any rain from it. And Elijah says, it happens now at my word. And so what happens is, is that there's no rain for three and a half years. You have a, a very neat story of Elijah going to a widow's house. And the widow provides uh, him with a cake and some water. And that cake, oil, and water last three and a half years until God brings rain. Really neat way that God keeps his, his man safe during the midst of this terrible time. And then you have... Uh, the man named Ahab has a wife named Jezebel, and Ahab is a worshiper of Baal, and he is he is not apologetic about it at all. And so his wife is busy killing the prophets of God, and they're busy worshiping Baal. And so then in verse 17 of chapter 18, chapter 18, verse 17, and so there's a man by the name of Obadiah who is over the house of Ahab. He's a godly man. And you have Ahab the king. They get together and there's no, there's been no rain, so there's no water. If there's no water, pretty soon you have to start killing animals because you need the water. You can't afford to give it to the animals. And so Ahab and Obadiah get together and they part ways and they both go looking for rivers and valleys for places to find water. And it's, and this is not the Obadiah who's the prophet the writing prophet in scripture. That's a different guy. And so uh, Elijah meets up with Obadiah and Elijah tells Obadiah, go tell Ahaz, Ahab this. And so then it says, it came about in verse 17, it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so he gathers, eight, he tells Ahab, you get 850 men together, your prophets, and you meet me at Mount Carmel. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. And so the interesting thing here is that the kings and the people are falling headlong into Baal worship and Asherah worship. Now, I told you these are both two sexually charged gods, and they're worshiping them gladly. And here comes a man by the name of Elijah, whose name means Yahweh is God. 
And so you have all of these people who are Asherah and Baal worshippers, and then you have this man named Elijah show up, whose name means Yahweh is God. And Elijah says, go get those prophets and meet me at Mount Carmel. Then verse 23. Now let them give us two... No, verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay on it the wood and will not put a fire under it. Verse 24. Then you call upon the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the Lord, excuse me, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that is a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you are many and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given to them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice for he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. And some of that language is incredibly funny because in its original language it means that maybe he's in the bathroom or maybe he's on a journey. Maybe, maybe he's all of these other places where a human might go. But call on him. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to wake your God up. Verse 28. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. It came about when midday was past that they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. Then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Listen to this, verse 37. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, he, excuse me, they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And so what happens here is you have a show of power by God. You have all of these people falling headlong into a hollow, sexually charged worship. 
And that's why I spent time talking about the, the Fifty Shades of Grey like I did. Because all of these people are falling into this hollow world of worship and fulfillment. And that's exactly what it is. And then you have one man over here who is going gonna, is gonna to trust the Lord to do what he said he's going to do. And God answers by fire, and he doesn't answer any of these things over here. Now listen very closely. Some of you may be in a place where you are going about life the way the world is going about it, and you're getting nowhere. You know that the Lord, he is God, but you're over here in this camp, and life is hollow. And there's no fulfillment, and there's no satisfaction, and there's no joy, no peace, no comfort, none of those things. We, as a people, need to be people who stand with God. And that we are the ones who say, the Lord, He is God, and He's the one we're going to trust. That's where we need to be as a people. And Elijah's there all by himself. Everybody is in cahoots together. But God shows up, and when God shows up and he does something great, the rest of the people, all of these people whose lives are hollow and empty, all of them realize, because of Elijah's faithfulness, that the Lord, he is God. Your life should be a testimony that the Lord, he is God. You should be, remember in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, it says that when the people see Israel... They're going to look at Israel and they're going to see their obedience and they're going to see the way that God is working amongst Israel. And the people are going to say, where else is there that there's a God who is so close to his people that when they call out to him, he answers them. That should be you and me. We should be people whose lives are holy and righteous. And when the rest of the world sees our lives, they need to say the same thing like said in Deuteronomy. Where else is there a God so close as God is to that person that whenever he calls, God answers? That's how we need to be. But we cannot be that sort of person if we keep dabbling in all sorts of garbage and we won't put sin behind us. You see, if you keep reading through and you read through Elijah's life, you find that the Lord comes to meet Elijah. And first the Lord, or excuse me, first a big wind comes, like a gale force wind comes. Then a fire consumes the hill. Then, uh, then an earthquake comes. And it says, but the Lord wasn't in any of those things. And then it says that a gentle breeze blew. And that's where the Lord was. The only way that you and I as followers of Christ get to be led by the Spirit of God to do incredible things like Elijah is if our lives are freed from sin and you are trained through this Word of God to pick up on that still, small voice and follow God. Listen, this story gets more and more and more convicting. You're going to find later that... um, I'll go ahead and read it. Verse 40. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal... And do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kidron, excuse me, Kishon, and slew them there. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Listen to this. Remember, there hasn't been any rain. And Elijah said, There's not going to be any rain except for by my word. And so this is the end of three and a half years. There's been this show of power that God is God. And it's obvious to everyone that God has been the one who stopped the rain. He sends Ahab back. 
because he tells Ahab rain is coming. And then in the middle of verse 42, it says, And he, that's Elijah, crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go back seven times. And so what happens is that God shows himself to be God on the mountain. And he has this elaborate victory, God does, through Elijah. And then Elijah tells Ahab, go because there's going to be rain. And Elijah hits his face. He hits the ground praying that God would send rain. And he prays and he sends his servant. And the servant comes back to him and said, there was no rain. And so he says, go back again. And Elijah's praying and there's no rain. And he says, go back, go back, go back. And six times the, the servant of Elijah goes back while Elijah is there praying and there's nothing. Nothing happens six times that Elijah prays. It's the seventh time when Elijah sends his servant away that the, the servant comes back and says there's a faint cloud in the distance. Now, if you go over to, we're going somewhere with this, James chapter 5, you can either listen or you can follow along. James chapter 5. And listen to this about prayer. Is anyone, this is James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Verse 18, then he prayed again. And the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Listen to me. The prophet Elijah was a man just like you and I, with a nature like ours. The only thing that Elijah had that separated him from the people was that the Spirit of God was among him. And next week, when we get to the book of Joel, you'll find out some really interesting things about the Spirit of the Lord. But Elijah is a man who the Spirit of the Lord is upon, and he does all sorts of these incredible things. He had a nature just like you and I. All sorts of powerful things happened through him. And we find out that he prays and the sky pours rain. And he prayed and the sky didn't rain. Listen to this. You and I need to be people of prayer. We need to be in prayer for every single thing in our life. And there are times in our life where we, like Elijah, need to go all in. And we need to say, the Lord, he is God. And unreservedly, we need to stand with the Lord. More so than that, before you can be that sort of person, we, as, as members of this church, have to be people of prayer. And do you know the first thing that churches cut out when attendance drops? Prayer meeting. That's where the power in our church is, is in our prayer meeting. For a year, I have been pushing and pushing and pushing us as a church to pray for lost people. Pray for your lost friends and family. Listen, Elijah was a man like us, and he prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. When I say let's 
pray for our lost friends and family. And I have to keep saying, let's pray for our lost friends and family. And people forget about it. That makes me think that we don't care about our lost friends and family. At our prayer meetings, those should be the times where you are begging God to give the soul of your husband to the Lord. For your wife to walk with the Lord. Your marriage is bad. That's when you need to be at Wednesday night praying that the Lord would bring healing to your marriage. You got kids who aren't walking with the Lord. You need to be in prayer that God would give your kids back to you and they would walk with the Lord. Prayer. That's how Elijah is able to do all of these things. And listen, when we as a church walk righteously and we pray for things that are in line with God's will, that's when God raises us up and the world sees how great God is through us. Why? Because you are getting answers to your prayers. But it's the prayer of the righteous man that availeth much. First, we've got to be righteous. And then we've got to care enough to take time out of our schedule to pray. And then God will raise us up and the world will see how great Christ is in us. And they will see that there is no other God that is as close to people as when Keshai Baptist Church prays. You start getting your prayers answered, you start walking righteous. You start getting your prayers answered. And prayer won't be so boring to you. But you got to be righteous first. And you got to not just pray for selfish things. You got to pray for things that are in line with God's agenda. Elijah didn't pray for whatever he wanted. He prayed things that were in line with Scripture. We need to be a people who know Scripture, pray things in line with Scripture. And let the world see us standing with God and Him acting on our behalf. Amen? What, uh, what I haven't done before, but I, I've been meaning to do, is we're going to close. I'm going to close in prayer. And then John and Betsy are going to play. And I usually stand down front and we sing a song. And we usually, you never know whether we're going to sing one verse of the song, two verses of the song. It's kind of whenever I look over at Betsy and give her the green light to stop, that's when we stop. I want us as a church, I want you as believers in Jesus Christ to be comfortable responding to anything the Holy Spirit may have put on your life. And so I want us to use this area in the front of the church as an altar. Not an altar where uh, just because you come down front doesn't mean that you're responding to any of the sexual things that I said, any of that stuff. Listen, when God's word is preached, all sorts of conviction goes out on people. You may be, God may be dealing with something with you that I haven't even mentioned. And I want you to have the freedom to be able to openly respond and get things right with God. Something happens. Something happens when you get out of your seat and you make a move towards responding to God. And so from, from this point forward, whenever we have any sort of invitation, whether I say it or not, we're going to play through a whole song. Betsy will just have a whole song prepared. She, she already does have a whole song prepared. She's just going to play through the whole song. And we're going to sing it as a worship song. And if anybody wants to respond, you're welcome to respond. If nobody responds, we're going to sing the whole worship song just like a regular song. And then we'll close. If the Holy Spirit sees fit to move in our church and we spend uh, an extended amount of time praying, then she has, she can keep playing the same song or we'll play a different song. If you come to the front and respond to God, we're not going to leave you high and dry here at the front, okay? We're going to take good care of you, and we'll close the service when God is finished doing business with us. So I'm going to come down front after I pray, and I want you to have a chance, if you want to, to respond uh, in any way that you see fit.
And I'll explain this for the next few weeks. And because I want to give you the freedom to leave your seat and do some sort of business with God. Because it always sticks better if you move. You can do business with God in your seat. But everything I've seen, when people move and respond to God, it always sticks better. So you come down front. You ask God, how can I take a stand? And how can people see the Lord, he is God, in my life? Lord, give me the soul of my husband. Give me my kids back. All of these things are things that you're able to pray at any time. So let me close this in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll have our invitation. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that even though Israel fell into sin, even though Judah fell into sin, that you did not leave them there, but you sent the voice of Elijah to them. Lord, you showed yourself to be God amidst a, amidst a wicked generation. Father, I pray for our uh, wives and our husbands and our children who may be walking in disobedience to you, who may be lost. Father, I pray that you would send someone into their life to be a voice to draw them back. Father, I pray that you would uh, protect our marriages from all of the heinous sin around us. Father, I pray that you would raise us up as a church. And that the world would be able to see how great you are through the way that you answer our prayers. Father, I pray that we would be a people who don't just pray selfishly. But we pray for things in accordance with your word and with your will. Father, help us to be obedient to you. And Father, help us as a church uh, to learn how to respond to you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you will stand for our hymn of invitation.